Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Another story of sexual assault by faculty at an elite New England boarding school came after an internal investigation. And then they uncovered, they lifted up this rock, and there were all kinds of things crawling underneath there. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll talk about the Boston Globe Spotlight Report that prompted that closer look and uncovered allegations dating back to the 1960s. Also, New England is seen as one of the most heavily Democratic parts of the country, so why are so many of our governors Republican? And popular ones at that. The political science literature says it's, it's always better for an executive to have the opposing party controlling the legislature, uh, in that their approval ratings tend to be higher and their re-election rates tend to be higher. And how did a beloved Boston statue help to ease U.S.-Soviet relations? More importantly, what does duckling diplomacy sound like in Russian? Kriak, kriak, lak. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. A new internal report from Choate Rosemary Hall in Connecticut names 12 former teachers who allegedly sexually assaulted students at the elite boarding school. It's the latest school to release its own findings since a Boston Globe spotlight investigation last year revealed allegations of sexual abuse at over 110 private schools in New England. In many cases, the alleged abusers were fired or allowed to resign without being reported to the authorities. That was the case at St. George's School in Rhode Island, where Ann Scott was a student. She told her story to the Globe. He, he had access to a locked room. I'll never forget the sound of the lock closing. Never trusted him. Numbing, numbing myself is really how I coped with it. So, I did withdraw pretty severely. I was deeply ashamed. I was blaming myself, uh, and then I started hurting myself and developed an eating disorder. Joining us is Jonathan Saltzman, a reporter on the Spotlight team who took part in the investigation and authored an article on the Choate Report last week. Jonathan, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the big spotlight investigation from last year that uh, we want to be talking about over the course of this segment, I I want you to maybe walk us through the most recent story that drew our attention, another report of harassment, uh, this time at Choate Rosemary Hall. This comes from a report by an investigator uh, who was hired to look into what's happening at the very exclusive Connecticut uh, private school. I'm wondering if you can walk us through exactly what's in that report that that you folks found. So Choate, in the wake of our stories, they hired a a former prosecutor in um, October of last year. And um, this prosecutor, this this lawyer, interviewed, I believe, more than 100 people connected with the school. That's alumni and faculty. 
And they found that two dozen students had alleged, more, really more than two dozen students alleged, that they had been the victims of sexual abuse. And what was really unusual about this report, because a lot of schools launched these investigations in the wake of our stories, what was unusual about this report was that the um, uh, investigator named a dozen former uh, faculty members and staffers who were responsible for the abuse, which is a pretty striking thing to do, given the fact that none of these people were ever charged. The other unusual thing about the report was that Choate acknowledged that um, with, I think, only one exception, they had never reported these allegations of abuse to child welfare authorities, even though they were required to do so. So, first of all, why do you think Choate gave the information about these 12 former teachers if, indeed, they'd never been charged with anything? As you say, it is pretty striking. Why do you think they took that step? Well, we have started to see more and more schools uh, do these investigations, and I think that many of these schools uh, feel that they're under a great deal of pressure In fact, many schools began these investigations while we were doing our series uh, because they were under a spotlight, uh, no pun intended, and then uh, they uh, began these investigations, in some cases, I think, to inoculate themselves so that they could say they, they were doing due diligence. What happened, of course, in a number of cases, and Choate is a prime example, is we'd only reported about one particular Uh, student at any length in our series at Choate, and Choate embarked on this investigation, and then they uncovered, they lifted up this rock, and there were all kinds of things crawling underneath there. So they really uh, disclosed a very, very serious uh, litany of horribles. So maybe you can take us back to the start of your Spotlight Team's investigation. How and why did you begin looking into this problem of sexual abuse and misconduct at private schools in New England. In December uh, of 2015, one of our colleagues, who's not on the Spotlight team, but is a veteran reporter, Bella English, and she did a pretty extraordinary story about a woman named Ann Scott. Um, She's an executive at a nonprofit in Virginia these days, and she's in her, I believe, early 50s. But in the late 1970s, she was a student at another boarding school, St. George's School in Rhode Island. She was a student athlete, but uh, she alleged that she was sexually abused, raped by an athletic trainer at the school in the late 1970s on multiple occasions. Now, she came forward with this Uh, Actually, about 10 years later, she'd suffered extraordinarily, and she'd had a lot of emotional problems. And she filed a lawsuit against the school, but it was a different time. She had filed it as a Jane Doe, and um, what they did was they essentially uh, would not let her proceed with this suit unless she came forward with her name, and they wanted to delve into her own past. And so she backed off. And she signed a a gag order, and she agreed not to discuss it anymore. And that seemed to be the end of that until 2015, when now that she was, you know, older, more mature, and uh, uh, felt, you know, the times had changed, 
and she uh, spoke to the Globe about her experience. And what happened was that was a blockbuster story, and ultimately, I would say more than 50 kids at St. George's, more than 50 alumni, came forward to say they too had been sexually abused. Um, but when that story first ran in December of 2015, the editor of The Globe came to the Spotlight team and said, you know, I, I think we've had these kinds of stories from time to time. How widespread is this problem in private schools? And is there anything similar about it to the uh, clergy sex abuse scandal, which, of course, the Spotlight team in an earlier uh, carnation uh, exposed? And so we spent the better part of a year looking at how widespread this was at schools in New England. And we found out that it was pretty damn widespread. A few of the ways in which this is similar from the clergy sex abuse scandal that you uncovered is the number of years, in many cases, that people waited to tell their stories for very good reasons, as you outline. Uh, there's also a, a culture of of secrecy and privacy around around these schools and their ability to control information. Of course, there's also the problem of just like priests who would go from one parish to another, uh, there are teachers who would then move from one school to another that students might well be concerned about. So I guess I'm wondering how many more of those parallels you saw with the clergy sex abuse scandal in the, in the Catholic Church uh, as with this, this private school problem. For one thing, uh, these were kids who were being exploited by people to whom they had been entrusted. Some of these uh, alumni had had troubled family backgrounds, and a number of them said that uh, they were drawn to certain teachers who ended up becoming uh, abusers. And um, those, much like with the priests, they seemed to know who to target. Uh, the other thing is that um, you're exactly right. There is a kind of a, a culture of, to a degree, of secrecy and uh, keeping things uh, within a kind of a closed circle. And uh, startlingly, there were a number of occasions when teachers left, and much as with the priests, uh, they were moved. They got letters of recommendation, and they moved on. Uh, of course, there, there are differences as well. I mean, in, with the clergy uh, sex abuse scandal, the church might move one priest to another parish, and they're affiliated with one another. These are independent schools. But there were, you know, there are some strong parallels. I want to play a clip from a video that's posted as part of the Spotlight investigation, uh, an interview with one of the victims. This is Stephen Starr. He's talking about a teacher and dorm master named James Dahlman at Fessenden School in Massachusetts back in 1968. Let's listen. Uh, you know, he'd walk around campus with a camera, and um, I was very interested in learning more about that. And uh, so I uh, pursued him to learn about photography. And uh, that uh, turned into something quite more than that. He would invite me to uh, come down after lights out to his room and to work in the dark room with him, ostensibly. Um, he gave me a camera, uh, which I actually still have to this day. I felt like, wow, I was really special. You know, I had this mentor who was looking out for me, who was teaching me these things. He took pictures of me, he would pose me, and sort of stage me in certain ways. He um, took other pictures that were um, much more 
erotic. And um, he took pictures of me in his room. He gave me booze. And he, uh, over time, uh, he started uh, molesting me. That's Stephen Starr, interviewed by the Boston Globe Spotlight team as part of a multimedia package in their big investigation from last year about sexual abuse at private schools in New England. This story, uh, Jonathan, is something that I'm assuming you and your colleagues heard an awful lot of. Um, the teachers would take students who were, you know, looking for a mentor, and they would they would ply them in one way or another and and gain their trust, and then and then abuse them. I actually interviewed Stephen Starr in Los Angeles. So he went to the Fessenden School. He was only 11 years old when he was sexually abused. And um, as he, you know, as the story says, he was actually abused. Uh, he says he was abused by two educators at the school. The thing that got me so interested and the reason I went out to California to in- interview him was because he told me that he still had the camera that uh, James Dahlman, his uh, alleged abuser, gave him as a gift. And I found that to be quite remarkable. And I thought that was almost, I I confess, almost weird that he would keep something from someone who had uh, caused so much uh, harm and unhappiness to him because, you know, Stephen has dealt with a lot of a lot of bad stuff. But he said, as he said, and we quoted him in the story as saying, he he kept it. It was almost as a talisman. And um, he struggled for years with substance abuse and with all kinds of psychological problems. And he's actually one of the people whom we interviewed who seemed to have uh, come out on the other side as well as imaginable. And uh, he he seemed to have a pretty successful career as a William Morris agent. He's writing a screenplay about his experience. Were there any consequences for for James Dahlman? Well, so what happened was James Dahlman, he and another uh, educator at the school, a high-ranking, I think, an assistant headmaster named Arthur Claridge, were arrested in the late 1970s as part of this pedophile ring. They were paying to have sex with young boys, boys I think as young as 12 in the the Boston area. I think Claridge, as I recall, cooperated and uh, he testified and uh, he ended up getting uh, like some sort of plea bargain. And Dahlman, uh, there's no evidence that he was convicted of anything. And I spoke to Claridge. Claridge is still alive. He's uh, he, he was as of a few months ago and he was living in Florida and uh, he denied abusing any kids at Fessenden, but he admitted that he'd had sex with teenage boys in this uh, arrest in, in Revere. And uh, he just kind of, he seemed to, seemed to kind of poo-poo it. I'm wondering, as this investigation continues to play out, you published last year, and clearly, some of these schools are launching their own investigations. There's more news coming out all the time. Do you think that we should look at this as a primarily private school problem? Is it a New England elite boarding school problem? I guess I'm just wondering if we can put our arms around how big an issue we're dealing with here. As we referenced earlier, the Catholic Church abuse scandal that you uncovered some years ago, it 
really essentially goes globally. And, and I'm wondering if this is self-contained in some way or if this just keeps getting bigger. Well, I don't think it's a New England uh, boarding school problem. You know, if you look, you'll see that there actually have been similar scandals at uh, boarding schools um, in California uh, and elsewhere. Naturally, the Choates and uh, the Deerfields and uh, the Phillips Exeter, those schools, uh, because of their uh, great history and, um, you know, so many leaders and prominent people have gone to those schools, uh, they garner a a tremendous amount of attention. But I I don't for a second think it's something unique to New England boarding schools. And then the other question, which is a good one, uh, is is this something unique to private schools or does it happen at public schools as well? There's pretty scant scientific research about how uh, common educator sexual abuse is. So I don't think you can say it is more common in private schools than in public schools. But at the same time, you can't overlook the fact that there is probably more opportunity in boarding schools. The kids are away from home. They're living on campus with uh, frequently teachers and educators who are living on campus. And the other thing is that you do not have some of the safeguards at private schools that you might have with public schools. For example, private school teachers are not typically licensed. And there is no registry, as there is in some places, of uh, the public school teachers and what they have gotten in trouble for. Um, and nor is, are there public school board meetings um, where these subjects might come up. So I, I don't think you can say it's more common in private schools, but I, I think you can say that, you know, um, on some levels, it, it makes sense that there might be greater access. Are you continuing to hear from victims who are bringing forward their allegations even decades later? Absolutely. I mean, in, just today, I, I, I've gotten emails. And what happens uh, is that whenever there are stories about this or something like this is in the news, it emboldens other people to come forward. One of the big things that emboldened a number of people uh, in this story, this series of stories last year, was the recent attention that the uh, scandal at Penn State garnered. And frankly, the the Spotlight Team movie about the clergy sex abuse scandal, Stephen Starr said that that was one of the reasons that he decided to come forward, um, as well as the Ann Scott case at St. St. George's. So um, it's like it really does have a snowball effect. And can the victims of these crimes that happened in the 1960s or 1970s or, or 80s or 90s can they get some sort of restitution at this point, or is is it for them just the ability to share their stories and let others know that this is what happened to them? Well, uh, some of them have gotten uh, restitution. There have been suits that were filed. There have been settlements in some cases. Typically, the statute, in terms of criminal culpability, uh, statutes of limitations have expired. But some people have gotten uh, some some settlements most of the people I've spoken to who've gotten them have have found that the money uh, they've said to me, and I have absolutely no reason to doubt it, that the money is kind of secondary. It's uh, coming forward and uh, getting the school's acknowledgement of what happened. That seems to be what they really want. A last thing for you, Jonathan, and I think this has always got to be a hard thing for someone who does investigative reporting of this type. 
Um, much like with the Catholic Church abuse scandal, not everyone who was involved with the Catholic Church was directly responsible for the terrible actions of, of some. And similarly, there are many, many thousands of people involved in private school education across our region who would say, my goodness, I, I had no idea and might worry that a report like this, an ongoing report like this, could paint with too broad a brush. I guess I'm wondering from a journalistic standpoint how you balance the need to continue to work on behalf of those victims who don't have a voice, but then also making it clear that for the large majority of the people who pay good money to go to private boarding schools, they're probably getting pretty good educations free of a lot of the, the horrible things that you've, you've outlined here. It's true. You never do want to paint with too broad a brush. And a lot of the students or the alumni we spoke to, uh, including some who were abused, said that they did get a good education at those schools. Um, but consider this. Uh, at St. George's School, as I recall, the report uh, by the lawyer hired by the school found that, I believe, one in five kids at that school mm. over a period of uh, um, a couple of decades, as I recall, were uh, uh, sexually abused. Uh, that's a mm. ton of students. And that's, not a, and that's not a statistic that the school is going to readily tell to a parent who wants to en enroll their kid in a, in a private elite school. I mean, it's out there. It's in the, it's in the report. I mean, it's a, it's, it, it's a staggering number. So, you know, of course, uh, thank goodness, you know, most kids who go to these schools do not get sexually abused. And, and I suspect that it is uh, less common today than it was uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Nonetheless, it's still a lot of people. And if you think about how much uh, you know, the the trauma that these people have suffered and uh, how it's affected their families, it's, it's, it's a huge deal. It's remarkable reporting, and I'm so glad you shared some of it with us today. Jonathan Saltzman is a reporter for the Boston Globe Spotlight team. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonathan. My pleasure. We have links to the Boston Globe investigative report, Private Schools, Painful Secrets, and Jonathan Saltzman's latest reporting at nextnewengland.org. The Spotlight team is still investigating allegations of abuse at New England private schools. You can leave them a tip at 617-929-7483 or at spotlight at globe.com. Coming up, why Democratic governors are struggling in popularity polls and Republican governors are taking over New England state houses. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. When political observers look at a map of the U.S., most of them put a mental placeholder over New England, and the color of that placeholder is blue. For many reasons, our region is both in reputation and reality a place where democratic politicians and liberal ideas flourish. 
So why then, when you look at the current political landscape of New England, do you see such success by Republican governors? A recent poll by Morning Consult that ranks the governors by popularity shows Charlie Baker of Massachusetts at a whopping 75% approval rating. He's even more popular in the Commonwealth than high-profile liberal standard-bearer Senator Elizabeth Warren. Then there's Vermont and New Hampshire, where you've got brand-new Republicans running things, Phil Scott and Chris Sununu, both enjoying very high favorable ratings. And even the outspoken and quite controversial Paul LePage is approved of by roughly half of Mainers. That leaves only two Democrats, and one of them, Dan Malloy of Connecticut, has just announced he won't be running for re-election. We wanted to learn more about how New Englanders view their governors, so we sat down with a panel of experts. Dan Haar is a columnist for the Hartford Current. Maureen Moakley is a professor of political science from the University of Rhode Island and is part of the political roundtable team at Rhode Island Public Radio. And Andy Smith is associate professor of political science at the University of New Hampshire. I wanted to start with Dan Haar to talk about the news about Malloy, a polarizing figure who heads up the Democratic Governors Association while having only an approval rating of 29%. As Haar reminded me, Malloy won close elections two times over the same self-financed Republican opponent. He faced enormous budget deficits, and he oversaw the state during the tragedy of the Sandy Hook shooting. First of all, uh, he will have been governor for, uh, you know, two, two full terms, and that's pretty much what we see. I was looking over the list of governors, and it's rare that a governor is elected three times. Uh, and there's a reason for that, because economic cycles, uh, you know, you will have a recession. Uh, and when you have a recession, you will become unpopular. When you have a poor recovery from a recession that really never gets out of recession in your state, you will remain unpopular. You know, it's the economy, stupid. And uh, and there's no way that a, a governor who's had to do what he's had to do could run a third time. He only was able to win the second time because he had a, a, one of the worst Republican candidates in memory. What did he have to do? What what ended up making him so unpopular, all these decisions he had to make? Well, he comes into office uh, in, in 2011, and he inherits a $3.5 billion budget shortfall. So he leans uh, a little bit towards the tax increase, the $1.5 billion tax increase in 2011. He also starts a long program of cutting back on state uh, employment, state personnel, which he doesn't get any credit for. Uh, and and it, it goes from there, but Connecticut doesn't recover. You don't get that money and use it as what he had hoped would be in 2012 and 13, a jump start. Instead, the jump start never starts in Connecticut. And so it's downhill from there. And of course, the latest budget that he had in 2016 was a strictly Republican budget with uh, 2,500 job eliminations and zero tax increases. So let's turn to Maureen Moakley in Rhode Island. Uh, Gina Raimondo there, uh, she has seen a surge in popularity, according to this morning consult poll that we're using to rank the governors. She's only at 48 percent approval, but you and some of your colleagues there see someone who's crawled out of a little bit of a hole over the course of the last several months. Yes. I mean, I think the interesting thing about Gina Raimondo is that she's recognized nationally for having done some remarkable things. Uh, for example, she was responsible for pension reform, and that was a very contentious issue, and she was able to put that together when she was the general treasurer. And so she's gotten national attention, but it's only recently that voters in Rhode Island have come to, shall we say, recognize and or support her in the levels that you think uh, she might garner. Uh, one of the reasons is that Rhode Island isn't as blue as people think. Trump did very well here. So there is a really conservative parochial base. 
another reason is that she has retained some serious political enemies in, in terms of the unions, and there's still deep resentment. The other thing is uh, I've come to conclude that there's a general sexism in this state, that this is a very parochial state. She's the first female governor, and I think people are only now beginning to accept her, and I think there was resent underlying resentment there. Um, and also um, in Rhode Island, there's a really deep general cynicism. This is a very small state, and people pay attention to politics like they pay attention to the soaps. And so any misstep... I think it's blown out of proportion. For example, there was a rollout of a branding for the state tourism board, and there were some missteps in terms of a few uh, minor um, inaccuracies in how it was portrayed. And this was just blown so out of proportion, and I can guarantee you when she runs for re-election, the rollout of the state branding um, episode will be one of the contentious features of this election. What about the economic recovery or not in Rhode Island? In Connecticut, right next door, the story is that we've taken far too long to come out of this economic hole. What does it look like as far as economic recovery in Rhode Island? It's really a different picture here because of the fact of the matter is that we were at the bottom of the barrel. We had the highest unemployment rates throughout the recession in the country. And since she has taken office, um, we are now at about 4.5 and for the first time in May above the national average. So in terms of the sort of economic dynamics, we are moving in the right direction. And even Romando's critics will acknowledge that she has been really um, fearless and very strong and aggressive about trying to get other companies to come to Rhode Island, and she's been fairly successful. And you can talk to Republicans that'll say the Chamber of Commerce on all their other reasons they might want to criticize her, but she has been very, very effective when it comes to bringing in industry. Um, there's a spate of land that's state property, and we're now uh, soliciting a uh, people to come. And she's been very successful about uh, creating sort of a tech uh, complex there near the University of Rhode Island, connected with the University of Rhode Island and Brown University. And that's going to be looked upon as a, a real spur in the economy. So in that regard, she has been governor while the situation has turned around and it's moving in the right direction. And that, I think, is why people are coming to recognize her um, as being an effective governor, and I expect she will get reelected. And when it comes to Dan Malloy, Dan Har, one of the issues is his inability to keep some major corporations from leaving. The headliner, of course, is General Electric, which moved from Fairfield to Boston. It's only a couple hundred jobs, but that seems to be the thing that people put on the front page of the Dan Malloy book booklet, that he's chasing jobs out of Connecticut through high taxes and not being business friendly. Yeah, actually, GE lost uh, the 200 jobs that went to Massachusetts. Um, Malloy was blamed for both paying too much to keep companies and for losing GE, where Boston paid $185 million to bring the headquarters. GE eliminated 2,000 jobs simply by selling them off to companies that didn't, that, that, that where they dissipated GE capital. So going back, GE a few years had 7,000 people in Connecticut, and now they're down to about 3,500. The overwhelming majority of that loss had nothing remotely whatsoever at all to do with any politics, taxation, or anything like it. How bad are things for Dan Malloy? So bad that yesterday Newsmax, the uh, uh, national political site, uh, blamed Malloy for losing Sikorsky. 
which the last time I looked was still here and growing, but Newsmax had him losing Sikorsky as a reason why he didn't run for re-election. I, I want to turn to Andy Smith uh, at the University of New Hampshire now. And Andy, we've been talking about Democratic governors who have a little bit of a track record, who've been fighting some battles internally. There in New Hampshire, you've got a, a brand new governor in Chris Sununu, who's a Republican, and so far people seem to like what he's doing. Well, I think it's absolutely right what Dan Har said just recently about um, the the economic recovery in Connecticut and how a, a bad economy is really going to hurt the party in charge. What we've seen in New Hampshire is that it's had a fairly low wage growth over the last year. It's only been up 0.6 percent. And as a consequence, they threw out the Democrats who had been um, governors going back to 2005. Uh, so it's been a long period of Democratic governors. And Chris Sununu, uh, obviously a, a familiar name to uh, New Hampshire politics, was able to win um, uh, in a actually surprisingly easy uh, victory in a year where other Democrats won in New Hampshire. And we've seen some of the same sort of pattern in some of the other uh, New England states. For example, Vermont had the worst wage growth of any state in, in uh, New England, um, a minus 3.8% uh, in, in their wage growth. And they threw out a Democratic uh, governor for a long period of time. And uh, Phil Scott now has a 68% uh, job approval rating in Vermont. So if you can be the new guy coming in, because you can certainly blame all of the bad things that may still be going on in your state uh, on the previous uh, previous administration. Peter Shumlin, the former governor from Vermont that you just mentioned, was in Connecticut recently for an uh, environmental talk, which is a big issue uh, that he always espoused. And I asked him about what happened to Sue Minter, where, where she was a good uh, Vermont-style liberal who got trounced by Phil Scott. And he said, you know, take a look at what's happened in Vermont. It goes back and forth and back and forth. So I took a look. And actually, there have been, since 1961, there has not been two consecutive governors of the same party elected in Vermont, amazingly. Prior to 1961, you go back to 1854, and they were all Republicans. As we've talked about on a program before, Andy, New Hampshire's a little bit different animal. So so talk about that and what is Chris Sununu going to try to do as a Republican leading the most purple state in New England? Well, I'd say New Hampshire actually leans a little bit uh, a little bit democratic, uh, but he's he, he, he's actually in a good position because he's had uh, a pretty solid Republican majority in the House and the Senate. Uh, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to be friendly to him. And I think that's not a bad thing because uh, the, 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 the House actually refused to pass a budget, which is the first time that's happened in a long time, decades. Uh, and uh, now it's up to the Senate to put a budget together, which is a very unusual thing for New Hampshire. So Sununu was not able to get through some of the things that he would like to in the legislature, even though it's a Republican legislature. So that's usually not such a bad thing, though, because uh, to be able to uh, have the legislature as a foil who's stopping you from doing things is always a, a better position to be in. So Sununu is actually, um, I think, will be okay uh, he's got a popular name, and in a midterm election, Republicans tend to do better than Democrats uh, in New Hampshire because the Republican electorate tends to be a little bit older uh, and more likely to vote than the Democratic electorate. We talked about the the popular brand-new governor of Vermont, a Republican, to your west, Andy. What can you tell us about Governor Paula Page to your east in Maine, somebody who is probably <laughs> as big an outlier in the, in the governor's <laughs> office as anybody in America? Well, Paula Page certainly is going to tell you what he thinks, um, um, unfiltered. Uh, LePage is it's, his uh, his popularity isn't too bad if you look at the morning consult survey. He's got a 48% approval rating. But the thing about Maine is that of all of the states in, in New England, 
its wage growth is the highest. It's uh, up 2.2% in the last year, and its unemployment rate is pretty low. It's down to 3.2%, and its overall economic growth is up 2.3%. So economically, LePage looks like he should be able to take advantage of uh, fairly good uh, economic times for Maine. The problem that LePage has is that he just has a tendency and oh, I would say a habit or a, a desire to antagonize people in politics by saying things that are certainly unpolitic. Well, let's actually turn to the most popular governor in America. He's Charlie Baker from Massachusetts, riding high at a 75 percent approval rating in this poll, Andy. And this isn't a brand new phenomenon either. Ever since the Republican took office in very, very blue Massachusetts, he's been very popular there. What's the secret to Charlie Baker? Uh, Charlie Baker has done a really good job in working with the Democratic legislature, believe it or not. He's actually had a better uh, track record in working with the the legislature than did Deval Patrick when he was governor more recently. And uh, He's he's got a personality uh, that is winning. He's kind of a, he's a he's a big, tall, kind of handsome guy, but he's kind of a uh, he, he's a little quiet. He he doesn't like to take credit for things. And then there's an old saying in politics that if you're willing to give other people's uh, other people credit, you can accomplish an awful lot. And and the economy is picking up in Massachusetts over the last uh, uh, 12 months. Their um, uh, growth rate has been up at 2.4 percent, which is uh, one of the highest in New England. So he's 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 coming out of the economy, the economic doldrums in Massachusetts is looking pretty good economically, and uh, he's the one who's getting the advantage of that. Well, Dan Harbert, we mentioned earlier a General Electric moving from Fairfield, Connecticut to Boston. In part, that's because Charlie Baker has something in the greater Boston tech bubble there that nobody else really in New England has. There's there's economic growth in Boston that I think others would envy. Yeah, demographics is destiny in Massachusetts, just as it is in Connecticut. You cannot substitute for having one of the big six or eight cities in America as a great magnet for young uh, college graduates, many of whom are, <laughs> don't have to go very far from Boston, of course. Uh, and that's where people want to be. And that's the reason that General Electric wanted to be there and so many other companies in the uh, uh, Seaport District and beyond. Um, to some extent, the governor is taking advantage of that. To a great extent, um, the eastern Massachusetts unemployment rate is basically zero. It's just at the point of noise. Um, and uh, to some extent, the role of a governor has changed. And a governor is in much in contrast to Congress and the president of the United States, much less of an ideological job than it was when we had, uh, for example, a lot more money to work with and when there was more growth uh, of course, there's growth in Boston, but we've we've sort of more or less dismantled the old uh, entitlement state other than maintaining it at, to the extent that we have to. That is, there's not really a lot of growth in the entitlement state, which was the, the, the defining ideology of the Democrats through the 60s and 70s. Um, and so the role of a, of a governor who's successful is a little bit more of a technocrat and a little less of an ideologue. And I think Charlie Baker is taking advantage of that as well. Is there value, Andy Smith, in, in split government, uh, especially here in New England, where a Republican governor can be seen as someone who can reign in a, a freewheeling and, and free spending Democratic legislature? Uh, well, certainly the political science literature says it's it's always better for an executive to have the opposing party um, controlling the legislature, better from a political standpoint uh, in that their approval ratings tend to be higher and their reelection rates tend to be higher. Uh, so there is something to be said for that. It certainly makes it harder to govern, uh, but you, uh, in a state like Massachusetts with Charlie Baker um, as, as governor or any Republican as governor, frankly, uh, there are so few Republicans in 
in the legislature that everyone knows that it's completely democratically controlled. And if there are any problems, so a guy like Baker can just point his finger downstairs there and <laughs> and, and blame the uh, uh, blame the Democrats. Some of the other states, it's a little bit more difficult. Certainly for Chris Sununu here in New Hampshire, it'll be a little bit more problematic as the uh, Republicans control uh, the legislature, even though they don't have uh, fairly large majorities and there are some ideological splits within the party. Is that the direction that Connecticut may go, Dan Har, looking to a Republican after years and years of not just a Democrat running the state, but all of the top elected officials being Democrats, the legislature being Democratic? Is is it time, uh, say, the voters to maybe turn to split government? I think so. I think there is no front runner, of course. But if you had to bet right now, you would bet on a Republican because of the economy. And But the problem here with that type of thinking, as Maureen said about Rhode Island, so it goes in Connecticut, a small state tends to be much more personality-driven. You can't knock on every door in Connecticut, but you can pretty much go to every town. I, I have to ask you before we leave, Dan Hart, you have a very important statistic about why Charlie Baker may have been so successful yes. uh, at becoming governor of Massachusetts, yes. a Republican in a Democratic state? Yes, you have to go back to the 60s before you get to a Massachusetts governor who was elected who did not have a degree either from Boston College or, more likely, Harvard University. And, and and Baker beat, uh, of course, Martha Coakley, who didn't go to Harvard, and maybe that's the reason. Well, certainly politics is tribal, and that's, uh, there are definitely <laughs> two tribes in uh, the Boston area between B.C. and Harvard. and Harvard. Andy Smith is associate professor of political science at the University of New Hampshire. Dan Haar is a columnist for the Hartford Current. And earlier, we heard from Maureen Moakley, a professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island and part of the political roundtable team at Rhode Island Public Radio. After our break, duckling diplomacy takes flight in Boston and Moscow. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. At the 121st Boston Marathon, the winners of both the women's and men's races were Kenyans, Edna Kiplagat and Jeffrey Karui. It was a great day for members of New England's Kenyan community, some of whom were there at the finish line. WBUR's Simone Rios was there too. <laughs> the runners are still miles from the finish line, but these Kenyans have a good feeling about what's to come. Okay, it's looking good so far. Yeah, yeah, feeling positive. Good, yeah, I'm feeling positive about this. Harrison Mina of Malden heads the New England Kenyan Welfare Association. Marathon and running is a very huge sport in Kenya, very popular. And it's associated with people who are back in the village. The easiest way, one of the easiest ways to make money, break it into big time money, you would be running and winning a marathon. And historically, Kenyans have dominated the Boston Marathon. Over the last two decades, 14 Kenyans have won the men's race and 13 have won the women's side. But Ethiopians have been more successful in recent years. Looks like they're they're, they're giving uh, the Ethiopians a run for their money. 
Yeah. Those are the ones to beat, the Ethiopians. The Ethiopians are the guys to beat. For many of the state's roughly 5,500 Kenyans, seeing their compatriots rule one of the most important sporting events in Boston is a huge thrill. They have come all the way from Africa, so we have to come and support them. That's Penny Waweru, who's come from Lowell to see the marathon for the last five years. She's part of a group of Kenyans who take in the race at the intersection of Exeter and Boylston Street. Some feel their presence is vital to those running the race. We are determined to come so that we can give them courage and uh, we motivate them so that they can continue. Many Kenyans grow up running. One of them is Frank Givinji, also from Lowell. Every morning, every evening, you go to school running. So it's like something which is inborn to us. So now participating in such an international sports, it's, uh, it's such an honor too. This group of fans waves the Kenyan flag and poses for pictures as the elite runners head for the finish. First, it was 37-year-old Edna Kiplagat, who crossed the finish line almost a minute ahead of her closest competitor. About a half hour later, 24-year-old Joffrey Kirui finished with 21 seconds to spare. Go Kenya! Moses Madengi came to the race in a brilliant dashiki. I feel like a Kenyan, proud to be a Kenyan today. All the time, but I feel elated. It's a pride he says he feels every day. But today, he's elated. That's Simone Rios reporting. Just a few blocks away from the finish line, you can visit the Boston Public Garden, and you're sure to find kids surrounding a family of ducks made out of bronze. They are, of course, Mrs. Mallard and her children. Jack, Cack, Lack, Mac, Knack, Whack, Pack, and Quack. While the ducklings from Robin McCluskey's children's book Make Way for Ducklings have become a Boston icon, this is not their only home. Bob Schaefer reports on the identical public art project that was erected in Moscow. You can think of it as a monument to Cold War diplomacy. As children play on the ducklings in Boston, parents like Sarah Rager stand by and watch, unaware their children are touching something even remotely related to the Cold War. I didn't know anything about the ones in Moscow. I mean, we've walked by these several times. We have the book at home. But that's really cool about the ones in Moscow. If I ever go, I'll visit them. <laughs> a copy of the Make Way for Ducklings sculpture was installed in Moscow in 1991. Then First Lady Barbara Bush gave the sculpture to Raisa Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev's wife. The ducklings were a gift from the children of the U.S. to the children of the USSR. The offering of public art came as the two countries signed a major nuclear arms treaty. It limited how many warheads and intercontinental ballistic missiles each side could have. Harvard University professor of diplomacy and international relations Nick Burns was at the signing as the director for Soviet affairs for the White House National Security Council. Burns says while the Cold War wasn't as heated in 1991 as it once was, the treaty showed the Soviet Union and the United States were committed to peace. Diplomacy is a combination of hard power, of economics, of military issues, but you also want to be able to connect on a personal level. And the ducklings were one way to do that. I had grown up just outside of Boston and, of course, knew about this story. I'd read it as a kid. It was surreal to see, but we were very proud, and I frankly was very proud to see that part of our culture in Boston had been exported as a symbol of peace to Moscow. It was public art sculptor Nancy Schoen who turned Robert McCloskey's ducklings into bronze figures for the public garden in 1987. She did it once again for Moscow in 1991, even though McCloskey had never wanted the ducklings outside of Boston. 
Shrint says she had always refused to create ducklings for others, so she didn't go against his wishes. However, when I talked to Bob about this, he said, I would be willing to do this if it's for children and it's not political. So he agreed under these circumstances that it would be strictly for children and not commercial or political. Shern says Raisa Gorbachev and other officials surveyed eight different locations in Moscow to find the best site for the ducklings. They ended up picking Novodevichy Park, home to a cemetery for Russian dignitaries and a 16th century convent. Down below is the most beautiful little duck pond, and the minarets from this convent, which are gold, were shimmering in this beautiful pond, and there were ducks there, and there were little duck houses there for the ducks. So I thought, oh my gosh, it was like a fairy tale. Almost 26 years later, Russians such as Tanya Malkova are still finding out about the ducklings. A lifelong Moscow resident, Malkova didn't know they existed until she was walking through the park recently. I saw this group of metal birds, which looked incredibly. Malkova says she now tells everyone she meets about the ducklings' history. They bring me back to the time when the world was starting to change. I believe that there is no way back to aggression, and somehow it cannot be turned back. People are people everywhere. So the the ducks in Boston and the ducks in Russia, they are the same as people are the same everywhere. So the Russian ducks are the same as the ones in Boston. But what do Jack, Kak, Lack, Mac, Knack, Whack, Pack, and Quack sound like in Russian? Kryak, Kvyak, Lak, Mak, Nyak, Brak, Vrak, Shmak. Those of us living in the Boston area, I think we think of this as like a piece of Boston history. Back in the public garden, Rafi Feingold and his family say it's hard to picture the ducklings outside Boston but also comforting given the recent tensions between the U.S. and Russia. Particularly at this time when you have, like, the leadership clashing to have commonality at a human level seems like a good thing. Mrs. Mallet and her kids rose above the decades-long divisions between the United States and the Soviet Union. The threat of nuclear weapons, espionage, and political calculations never stood a chance between them. Not bad for a pack of ducks who just wanted to find the perfect home. That's Bob Schaefer from WBUR reporting. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Debbie Bleacher, Erica Mance, and John Bender. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.